John chapter 8. In these uh, <clears throat> events in the Gospels here, uh, we see Jesus uh, talking to people. Uh, we see Him healing folks. We see Him talking to religious leaders. And uh, we've sort of been in this uh, area here of chapter 8 for a while uh, about Jesus and some, some major statements He's made. In fact, uh, if you'll notice in chapter 8, Jesus uh, makes this statement in chapter 8. It's one of the I am statements. And we're going to look at those as we go through the Gospel of John. There are seven of them. The I am statements, which relate, refer to the Hebrew idea of God. His name, Hayah, or Vayahi, <clears throat> the idea I am, that I am. And Jesus said in, Matt, in John chapter 8, verse 12, Then Jesus spoke to them, saying, I'm the light of the world, and who follows me will not walk in the darkness but it will have the light of life. And I've suggested that uh, part of that uh, develops a theme that Jesus is showing the light on some subjects. Uh, last week we looked at the light that Jesus showed us on judging. Uh, and if you want to listen to that, you go listen to the recording, or the light that He gave us on opportunity. Today we're going to look at His light on some other things, and they're pretty, pretty important matters, uh, if you will. And I call it this, I think. The light of the world, the light on relationships. <clears throat> the light on relationships. That Jesus, I think, reveals some things about some really important uh, relationships uh, that we have in life and our existence. Uh, it always reminds me when I think of relationships. You know, it uh, used to be, I, you know, I'm sort of getting older. We used to have this phrase at the university. I don't know, they, they told me this, and they often lie to me to make me look stupid, but, which doesn't take much. But they would say it's the DTR time. You ever, you ever heard of that? DTR? Y'all are older than I am. <laughs> Define the relationship. Yeah, you know, a guy's dating a girl, and the girl's dating a guy, and the guy thinks it's this way, and the girl thinks it's that way, and it usually goes the way the girl thinks, right? Uh, Becky and I, we were dating, I remember, years and years ago. It seems like a long, long time ago. It was. Uh, I was in Houston one summer, and she went uh, home to work uh, with her aunt in Dexter, uh, Kansas. And uh, I had said to Becky, you know, a lot, I love you, I love you, I love you. And she kept saying, what does that mean? What does that mean? <clears throat> you know, what does that mean? And I kept saying, it means I love you a lot, uh, a whole bunch, <clears throat> you know, maybe for a long time. You know, it just kept going because what she was wanting to know was, okay, is there a ring involved in this? And is there a wedding date? I told you, you know, she gave me the ultimatum that day. And I remember calling her one time, and we were talking on the phone, and, and she'd said she'd been somewhere. I said, where'd you go? And she, she act, this, she's going to kill me for this. <clears throat> uh, she had gone out on a date with a guy while I was home in Houston being faithful. <laughs> Come on, sympathy. <clears throat> yeah, she went out with a guy. And we're talking, I'm saying, you did what? I think she's trying to press me a little here. And he was a pig farmer, which made it even worse to me. <clears throat> I have some Jewish roots. And, <clears throat> and she's telling me this over the phone, and I'm like 800 miles from her or something like that. And I just said, what are you doing? And she basically said, hey, you don't have any hang rules on me here. We're just... Dating. I said, but I love you. And again, she goes, and that means what? <clears throat> yeah. <clears throat> I got serious. <clears throat> yeah. 
Becky probably doesn't remember exactly like this. She's telling her table right now. I know she's doing it. But this is the way it happened. I promise. Maybe I misremembered. No, anyway. But, but defining relationships in life is huge. Huge. Whether it's dating or defining the relationship with your children. You know, we used to laugh around my house. When I turned 18, my dad broke my plate. He let me know, see ya, <clears throat> you know. <laughs> Defining the relationship with our children. Defining the relationship at work. How much does work own us? How much do we have to invest? I think relationships are what life is all about. And in defining those, I think Jesus wants to help us here. One of those relationships, obviously, is with Him. What is it to have a relationship with Jesus? What does that mean? How, how do we understand that in a world where there are myriads of opinions and myriads of ideas? And Does the Bible help us uh, at any level to understand what that relationship is? So I want to begin here reading with you, if you will, in, in John chapter 8. After we uh, talked about what Jesus had shined the light on last week, then Jesus says in verse 31, So Jesus was answering to those Jews who had believed Him. That's interesting. <clears throat> He, he was talking now to Jewish people who believed Him. And He said, If you continue in My Word, then you are truly disciples of Mine. And you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And these Jewish leaders answered and said to Him, We're Abraham's descendants, and have never been enslaved. Now, that's almost comical. Uh, you know, I mean, really. I mean, I'm going to try to explain what, how, on the, how on earth... Could they have ever said that? Even at the moment. But we've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will, be, you will become free? Jesus answered, And truly I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. Then the, the son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you'll be free. Indeed. I know you're Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me. Because my word, maybe underline that, because he said if you continue in my word, we're going to come back at that. Because you seek, because my word has no place in you. I speak these things which I have seen with my father, therefore you do these things which you've heard from your father. We're going to look at that. Now, I want to look at this under this, this idea of these relationships. And I'll just suggest here, first of all, this first one. The light on a relationship with Jesus. Now, you know, Jesus is still the most uh, fascinating person of all, all, all of history. Uh, there are people who love Him and revere Him, who maybe don't believe Him, but think He's a great guy, set a great example, did some things like that. But Jesus makes a statement here about those who would be His disciples. Now, now let, me, let, me, uh, let me look at this here for a second in John. Because you'll know, remember, if, if you know, we were in chapter 6 for a year and a half, it seemed... <laughs> That in chapter 6, the word disciple, I'm going to explain some of that, what it means. That in chapter 6, when Jesus uh, uh, made the statement, if you want to be my follower, you have to uh, drink my blood and eat, uh, eat my flesh. And that was very offensive. And he explained to them. It said, many of his disciples no longer followed him. That's what it says. Same word here. Same word that's used to those 12 guys. Many of his disciples didn't follow him anymore. And I think what Jesus is commenting on here in 8 is this. Notice what he says. If you continue in my word, then 
you're my disciples. This idea of continuing, we'll look at what that means here in a moment, but this idea of continuing, it isn't the idea of starting and, and, and really going for a while, or starting and stopping and starting again, but, but it really is the notion of a relationship with Jesus is that I continue in His Word or His teachings as a way of life. Now, you know, I was reading that, I thought, why do we not continue in Jesus' teachings? As, as a constant. I, I mean, you know, we, we believe this, and then we go there, and we do this and do that. I, I was reading this and thinking this this week. I thought, you know, I, I think we ought to face the fact that sometimes we, me, you, all of us, we're not sure that we really can trust Him. That's what it boils down to for me. You know, I see something and say, you said what? <laughs> you know, Jesus said this, and then as a theologian, it's my job to explain that He really didn't mean it. We were, at a, we were at a meeting this week and Tony Campolo was in town who is dangerous for anybody to be around. Campolo told the story how that Shane Claiborne, one of his friends, was a teaching and preaching at a place and he said, I'm going to preach for you today the world's greatest sermon ever preached. And of course, everybody's looking at this young guy and thinking, okay, who do you think you are? He gets up and reads the Sermon on the Mount and says, that's it, that's the sermon. But of course, Jesus didn't mean that. And everybody went, oh. You know, you know, I, I mean, really... This idea of continuing in His Word or His words requires for us to come to some conclusion at some point in our life. Do I really believe this stuff? You know, do I, do, do, do I really have confidence? that what it, Now, it could be, again, that, that sometimes we struggle with understanding. I get that. There's still verses in the Bible that I wish made more sense to me than they do. Anybody with me? Yeah. Or you wish made more sense to me. Could, no. yeah. yeah. I get that. But this idea of making more sense. There are times when I just have to say, you know, I have to be confessional here. I don't really know what this means exactly. But I confess that my faith and confidence in Jesus means I believe it and I'm going to do my very best to live it. I don't understand it all. Anybody that tells you that I think is silly. I was reading a guy the other day talked about that a lot of us in our religion, it's called the Dr. Spock religion. Everything is logical. Everything's analytical. There's no mystery, you know. There's nothing here to say, man, I don't know. That, 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 that troubles me. That, that bothers me. You know what that speaks to, though, in my mind, is the inspiration of the Scriptures. If people are writing these things to try to fool you, if they're writing these verses and these passages to try to put propaganda, they would make them crystal clear because they don't want anybody to have any problems with it because people know that when you have a problem with it, what's your tendency? Just back away from it. So Jesus says, remain, stay, continue. My dad used to say to me, it's not the person that begins, it's the person that ends. And Jesus says this, and these, let me give you the verses here where he talks about his word. It's in 831, 837, 843, 851, 852. I don't have time to unpack all that. But Jesus keeps referring, stay in my word, my words. And so he says this, if you're really my disciple." You're going to continue, stay in, remain, stay with my word and my teachings. And you know what? I, I, I've studied psychology and I've been the subject of a couple of studies, but <laughs> yeah. I thought when we were at the university one time, they had this class called Abnormal Psych, also known as Cliff Sanders. You know? <laughs> and, I, and I believe in that stuff and I have that. But you know, I, it, there's, there's, a, there's a point at which... As I, as I look with my students to talk with them to say that 
I'm trusting in my life and other people's lives is that my default setting is not what do I think or what do I know or what do I understand. Nothing wrong with using your brain. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But the default setting of is what is Jesus' word on this? Does he have anything to say about it? Is there anything here that I should consider first? Is there anything that's in the revelation of the Gospels that helps me understand how... That to me should, in my life it seems to me, is wanting to be my default setting. Not what does my culture tell me, not what did my family... Not even what my church... Not even what Cliff said to you, you know? Really. But what is the word of Jesus on this, if anything? So how much of the Gospels do we really take seriously? What do we do in our lives to say, I believe the words of... I'm going to remain... In the words of Jesus. I told you last year I went to a conference in Denver called Simply Jesus. And I was challenged by a guy named Bart Tarman to spend one year. And all I would read in my personal devotional time are the Gospels. And I made that commitment. And I've kept it. I was all, all powerfully drawn to go see what Paul said. <laughs> you know, I was powerfully drawn to wonder what did the epistles say. Because I love that logical material. I, I just love it. I enjoy it. You know, I always tell my you know, students, you've heard it, what are the epistles, you know, the wives of the apostles. I know. Some of you. And they, and they write that down, you know. Like, uh, I'm going to put it on a test one day. I love that stuff. I, I love the epistles. I love that kind of, because it's logical. It's analytical. It tends to be theological. It tends to be, it, it, it tends to be uh, uh, working through some kind of logic. But this past year, I'm telling you, I've not had to force myself, but I had to just rein in my natural tendency. Is to say, what did Jesus say? What was His word on this? And I have to tell you, it's been a changing experience for me to spend my time and my devotional time and my, my study time to just say, I'm going to study the Gospels. I find that there's a lot of things I forgot He said. I find that there are things that he said and things that he said to people that I'd forgotten about. I thought, well, wow, I didn't realize Jesus said that. So let me ask you something this week. We're going to move on, but here's somewhat of an application. I should have put that up there. <laughs> the relationships continue in my word. I should look at my notes here once in a while. Continue in my word. I'm going to ask you to consider this. What if this week you noted how many times... The things you believe can be directly tied to the teachings of Jesus. You know, I hear people commenting and talking sometimes on social issues. The thing that concerns me is they're often in the Old Testament. Or they're often somewhere else other than Jesus. That's, that's a little disturbing to me. To, to say, wait a minute, don't we start here? With Jesus to say he's the final revelation. Hebrews 1, 1 to 4 said in many and various ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, but in these last days has spoken to us through his son who is the image of the invisible God, the exact representation of the Father. How many of our thoughts and our ideas when people ask us about questions or our teaching, how many can be directly tied to the teachings of Jesus? There's some things that I've listened that come out of my own mouth that I thought, well now, you know, that's from the Bible but did Jesus ever talk about it? Now, I'm not trying to set up a dichotomy here that Paul and Jesus are against one another. What Paul is trying to do and Peter and James and those other guys are trying to give some explicit understanding of what this life in Jesus means. But how many times do we end up quoting Paul instead of Jesus? How many times do we end up... And I'm going to do some of that today, so I'm being a hypocrite, okay? So 
What about, what about that? What, or what does this suggest? If some of our ideas, we can't directly tie them back to Jesus. You know, you hear people talk and you say, well, that doesn't sound like Jesus. You hear people react to others that they think are not right. Say, that doesn't sound like Jesus. So, so what is it? And then, or get N.T. Wright's book. It's a great book called, I, I don't sell them. I don't have any, you know, uh, uh, any uh, return yet. Uh, but uh, uh, simply Jesus and begin reading it. Simply Jesus. So Jesus said, if you stay in my word, then this. You're truly a disciple. Notice what he says here. Uh, if you remain or continue my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. This is how Jesus is defining the relationship. It isn't that you just believe. It isn't that you just accept. It's that you stay or you remain. You continue in my word. And what I'm suggesting this means is that Jesus' word is the default setting for our decision making. Jesus' words are the default. I'm not saying forget the rest of the Bible. I'm saying start there. Start there. That the idea that I continue in His word, that I am truly, if you will, a disciple. The word truly there is interesting. Uh, in, in, in Greek, or, uh, yeah, Greek or, or in Hebrew rather, there really uh, uh, is no what we call a comparative adjective or superlative, a great, greater, greatest, or in East Texas, most greatest, and uh, <laughs> mostest greatest. <laughs> yeah. uh, so in order to emphasize something, you say it twice. You say it twice. That's why Jesus says, Amen, Amen. He means, hey, listen up. When you see in the Gospels, it says, Amen, Amen. That because there's no way to emphasize it with a comparative adjective, you have to say it twice. And this word here truly is a transliteration of this idea. Of, listen, listen up, he said. Here, here, here's how you can know if you're truly my disciple by continuing my word. Disciple, what does that mean? Uh, Jesus uses a term here that is not just religious. Aristotle had disciples. Pythagoras had disciples. Other leaders had disciples. The word disciple here, you probably know this, but let me just remind you. It's the word that means to be a follower, or it is sometimes uh, translated syn a synonym with the Greek word mimeo, which means to mimic. To mimic. Now I'm embarrassed. Here's an example. I remember, anybody remember the movie Young Frankenstein? You probably don't. You're Christians, right? Remember when... Remember when Remember when Gene Wilder, who is young Frankenstein, comes to the train station? And uh, Marty Feldman, the bug-eyed guy, you know, he's Igor. And he meets him at the train station, and they start leaving. And he says to young Frankenstein, walk like this. What did Wilder do? He started walking like this. Remember that? Yeah. I'm sorry. I, I know you came to church today. Huh? You get it now. You saw the... Now you get it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, you know, Marty Feldman says, walk like this. So he does. That's the idea, as ridiculous as that is, of a disciple. They mimic. They follow. They do. You know what I've noticed? This is, it's scary in one sense. I've been teaching at the university for 23 years, and sometimes I get students that actually graduate. And you know, I'm strong medicine for them, so some of them say, I'm going somewhere else. 
But I asked the president one time, we were talking about this. I said, are you sure that you want me to be in that leadership role? Because, uh, President, I, I see people talking like me and acting like me. It's frightening <laughs> in some ways. You know, Jesus said in John 6.40, go read this, a disciple is not above his teacher, but when he is fully taught, he will be like his teacher. It didn't say he would know what his teacher knows. It says when he is fully taught, he will be like his teacher. Why? Because a disciple, a follower, is watching, listening, taking their cues from. I had some guys I knew went to another university, which was a pretty conservative place. And uh, they all idolized the guy that was kind of the lead, leader. And I told my dad one time, every one of those guys came back. When they came back, they talked like that guy. They prayed like that guy. They acted like that guy. They were my, We call it mentoring, call it life coaching, anything you want to call it. But it's the, it's the historic action of following somebody, doing, living what they do. One scholar has said it this way, and it, we found it in the Mishnah, and if you want to look at it, you can go look at it later. But, but the, the word was this in, in the days of Jesus, that a, a disciple, a follower, said, if you want to be my disciple, they said this, that you should live so close and so, so attached to your teacher, to your rabbi, teacher, that's what it means, rabbi, rabbi, that, hit the, that the dust of your rabbi should be on you. He said, powder yourself with the dust of the rabbi. That's following. We, we, we I think in America, because we, we tend to have Dr. Spock religion, that's logical and analytical, we think it's just belief. Believe him, believe him. And that's part of it. But it's following. My dad used to say at times like this, he would say, he knows this guy that would say this, hey, don't confuse me with the facts. My mind is made up. <laughs> you know? Don't confuse me with the facts. My mind's already made up. Is that possible? Haven't we seen that in our own lives or others before that people get so committed to a situation or a position that they cannot or will not even think logically? The other possibility is the word here, slave, doulos, which is actually used here, could be, and some think that this is a possibility, that because of that, that they're saying, well, we've never been enslaved to the point that we couldn't have our own place to be. That's a possibility. But Jesus says this, and they, or they say, he said, how will you become free? And Jesus said, truly I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave to sin. Now, I want to look at this here. This idea of the kind of, the kind of freedom that Jesus wants to offer is that sin enslaves. Sin enslaves. Uh, the, the idea, and I try to talk to my students about this, the New Testament and the Scriptures throughout seem to suggest that sin is not a zero-sum game. It isn't you do it and you come out the end just like you were before. It affects your heart. You can go read these. Hebrews 3, 13 and 14 says that sin hardens our heart. It hardens it. It also says in Hebrews that sin deceives us causes us to, to not see and understand. And so Jesus is saying there that the person who commits sin... Now, let me, let me look at this here. 
Jesus said the one who commits sin is a slave. The, the term here commits, it's an important term. The term here commits is not suggesting an incident. It's not, it's not suggesting a sin. Jesus is referring to here a person who is living a life of sin. It's what we call a present participle. And it's the pre, it means continuing to sin. It, it, it is that a person becomes enslaved to it, that now they can't stop. I don't use this word very often because I, I think people have lost its meaning. But, but I do use at times to talk to people about this in the language of addiction. We get that, don't we? We know when people are addicted to a substance or a process, they're not, not just substance, but processes, too much work, you know, uh, 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 things, that, that there comes a place where they just can't stop. They just can't stop you. You hear people say this all the time. And Jesus just making a statement. He said, hey, I, I want you to be free, but to continue to live in sin, he says, bring slavery. Now, I want, I want to unpack this, okay? Because I've, I've been teaching about this for years. I, I want to unpack this, this idea of sin and slavery and why it might be so. Number one, I want to say to you that, that sin enslaves because it's misplaced trust. Sin, sin enslaves us because it causes us to misplace our trust. These guys in this passage, these religious leaders, are depending on their heritage. Sin will enslave anybody that thinks, you know what? I'm a pretty good person. And I come from a pretty good family. I go to church. This misplaced trust here. Notice it. Jesus confronts the religious leaders in their response to trust in their heritage. We are Abraham's children, they say. We're depending on this. This appears to be an essential matter here that they think that sin can't touch them because of who they are. You know, I've, 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 I've pastored people for a long time ago when I would say to a person, you know, are, are you a Christian? They say, well, I've been going to this church since it was built. I said, I didn't ask you a construction question, you know. <laughs> Misplaced trust. You, you, you talk to people and, and say, you know, are, are you living for Jesus? Or, or how's your life? Or, are you, you, you enslaved to sin? Well, you know, I go to church. I, I, I do all the good I can. These guys are an example here. They're enslaved to sin. And they either know it or don't know it. I, you know, I don't know. But part of the problem is because they've confused being a child of Abraham with being a child of God. And this is a huge issue in the New Testament. Who are you? <laughs> you know, are you a child of God or are you a child of whatever? And Jesus knows this. He's speaking to these people to say, you've misplaced your trust. You've, you've depended on your church attendance or your giving or your care for the poor or you've misplaced it because you've been a, a leader in the church or you teach... Uh, you know, at a, at a Christian university. That's not what, what delivers us from the power of sin. We'll see there in a minute where Jesus said the Son does that. Let me show you a couple of things. I, here, here's another thing I'm real concerned about. I think that, that the New Testament teaches us over and over again that the reason people are enslaved is they don't know the difference between sin and temptation. People know the difference. I can tell you that as a fact. I, I, I didn't, I'm not doing a study here today on that, but... In my, in my years of work at the university, I'll give you some numbers. 57% of my students tell me that they do not or they did not know the difference between sin and temptation before taking my class on biblical life and witness. 57%. They think things like this, that if they have a bad thought, 
they've sinned. They think that if they have a bad impulse, they've sinned. I, I keep saying, where have you guys been? <laughs> you know, I want to I know sometimes, what are we teaching in the church? You know, what, what are we teaching people? Don't know the difference. And, and, and some of them have, have confided in me. Say, Cliff, I thought I was sinning every day. I thought, well, I did too, but you know, now that you're telling me that, no. <laughs> no. Do you know there are people, I think, who are enslaved to what they think is sin? They think because they have a bad thought or something occurs. I, I, just go look at this later. Again, I'm contradicting some of the things I've said, but in this regard, about going to the epistles. But in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, the Bible says that Jesus was tempted in every way as we were, yet without sin. So can you be tempted and not sin? Do, do you know there are people that don't think that's true or can't make the distinction? Let me tell you where it works real quick. This is a quick answer. Here's how it works. Temptation is when you're drawn to do anything you want to. I've told my students, this may not be a good thing to admit on the... On the recording, but there has to be some interest, okay? You can't be tempted if you're not interested. When I was a younger man, and like, I, I was never tempted with beer. I just never developed a taste for it. just didn't like it. Uh, maybe I just got some bad stuff or what, you know, I don't know. I just didn't like it. But I was very tempted with hard liquor. I like stuff that just knock you to the ground. You know, imagine that, my personality, right? You know. Yeah, you know that's what I wanted. I don't need this kind of stuff where you sit and you just kind of. So, so what I what what I said, you know, a beer truck could 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 wreck in front of my house. It wouldn't wouldn't tempt me at all. Wouldn't tempt me at all. But some Chevys or some some other stuff, I'd be tempted. Why? Because temptation is when you are drawn. It's not sin. It's not sin. Temptation becomes sin when we give consent to it. When we say, yes, I will do that. When we give our consent to say, what I'm being drawn to do, what I'm being tempted to do, if I get the chance, I'll do it. I'll work it out in my mind. I'll figure it out. I'll think it through. And this is how I would do it. And Jesus would say, then you've already done it. That's why I said, if any man looks up, if any man looks upon a woman with the intent to lust, he's committed sin in his heart. Did, didn't say if any man looks upon a woman and goes, "Wow," <laughs> didn't say that in the Bible, or looks upon a woman and says, "There's a compatible person that would be nice to be with," right? I mean, we don't think guys don't think like that. I'm just fooling you. <laughs> we don't think like that at all. Those words never enter our mind. Really, I just should have stopped with, wow. Right? But you, you get what I'm saying. There's, there's an awareness, there's understanding, there's attraction. But I haven't given my, I'm not consenting, I'm not, I'm not working that out in my mind. Here, here's what I'll say. I, you, you may be one of those people. I think there are people who are struggling with sin that isn't sin at all. And they think they sin every day. Because they have a thought or something occurs. I'll give you a final statement from Martin Luther. Martin Luther used to say, you can't keep the birds from flying over your hair, overhead, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. And you can't keep the birds from flying overhead. Let me tell you another thing that we do that I don't think helps. We deal only with the symptoms. 
We deal only with the symptoms. I'm learning, and I have learned, that every church has got their own list. When I was a kid growing up, we couldn't dance at our church. We did, but we didn't tell anybody. It was considered a sin. I found out the Methodists didn't have that list. I wanted to convert instantly. And you know what? I know some people that don't dance because they can't, but I know some people that don't dance because they think it's wrong. But there's nothing going on in their heart. See, sin's a matter of the heart. And we want to talk about symptoms. Well, you did this or you did that. What the issue is, is what's going on in my heart. I, I've, I've had this conversation with myself. That, that the fact is when, when I've said, uh, when I've sinned, and I have since I've been a professor and since I've been a Christian, what is it in my heart that is being drawn to this? Jesus, what is it in my heart that's being drawn to this? Not the original drawing, where we're all tempted, but to where I actually go ahead. It's a heart issue, guys. It's not a behavior issue. It's not just an action issue. It's a heart issue. It's what's going on, not the symptom. Listen, if you went to your doctor and had a headache, and he gave you Tylenol with codeine, and then the next day you come back and say, I've still got it, my eyes are crossed, I can't see very well, well, here's some Tylenol with morphine. What would you do? Find another doctor. <laughs> What's he treating? Symptoms. It could be something much worse. It could be something much more serious. But people are enslaved by sin because we just say, stop doing that. Doesn't that help a lot? <laughs> stop doing that. Stop doing that. We deal with the symptoms instead of the heart of the issue. I want to give you a quote here, and we're not going to finish today. Surprise. <laughs> let, let, let me give you this real quick. I'm going to come back, and this is too important. We need a working definition of sin. And, and I'm going to come back and explain these in a little more detail. I don't think having a definition, I'm, I'm not saying you win this battle by having the right definition. But I think diagnosis is critically important. When you go to the doctor, you want them to get the right diagnosis first, right? Or, or we're going to have real problems. Here are two definitions I would refer you to. We'll come back and see them. Is self-rule. Over the years, I've realized that what sin really is, is I want to be in control, and I'm going to be in control. Sometimes this gets going where it isn't all the obvious things, but, you know, thank God for this church. It's just been a wonderful place. But I tell you, I've seen church people that would fight tooth and nail over the color of a carpet because of self-will. I cannot not be accommodated. You're going to do what I... And I tell my students all the time, they, they, nobody can fight like church people. <laughs> they can't. Thank God for this church that such unity and wonder. But listen, all those actions flow out of I'm going to be in charge. Let me show you this other one. This comes, this one to me is the one that we need to spend time with. Misdirected love. Jesus said, the whole duty of man is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Sin 
is when that love to God or my neighbor gets misdirected. A lot of our friends that are wonderful people, we love them. They're not followers of Jesus. They pay their library fines. They take care of their kids. They mow their yard. They're not bad people in terms of their behavior. The question is, have they misdirected their love from God and neighbor to something or someone else? I, I believe this is the crux of the issue. That sin is a love issue. That sin is when love gets redirected away from God or other. That's why sometimes Christians can be so mean when they're so right. Right? You ever met people like that? They're, they're just so mean. I'm right, but you're so mean. Because your love is not to your neighbor or even to God. It's to be in right. I'll give you one more statement and we're out of here, but we're coming back on this. Let me tell you why. This relationship with sin is something you and I deal with every day, don't we? Man alive, somebody needs to teach this class different than me if it's only me and one other person. <laughs> okay, somebody else will be teaching next week. We deal with this every day. This relationship with this matter of sin. I don't want to make it. I don't want to make it uh, uh, fanciful. I don't, I don't want to make it simple. I want to really dial in because let me, let me tell you something. William Sankster made this statement. And I think it gets at this idea. We'll look at this later because we're going to look at the Son as one who sets us free. Sangster said it like this, that what Jesus does for all of us when He comes into our heart and our life, He said it's the expulsive power of a new affection. It's the expulsive power of a new affection. When the Son sets you free, when the Son comes in, His love for you and your love for His expels every lesser love. That's not try harder. That's not quit doing this. That's not get the new improved list. That's allow the Son who will set you free to come in your heart and my heart and redirect that love where it needs to be back to God. That to me is the key. This is a love issue, folks. It's not a behavior issue. It's not a try harder issue. It's not get after it issue. It's not you're going to get shamed if you do it issue. It's a matter of our love to God and His love to us. I wish I had some, we're, going to, we're going to take some more time on that. But this relationship, how do I deal with this in a way that's workable, that matters, that doesn't turn me into some kind of legalistic, pinheaded geek? but into a follower that's empowered and filled with God's love for life. That's what I want. I bet that's what you want. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to remain in Your Word and be Your disciples. Set us free with love for You and others that only love can do, that no rule book, no re regulations, no requirements, no threat can set our heart free. Enable us through Jesus, we pray. Amen.